is a glad to be able to have the chance this morning to, to speak and kind of to, to launch out in this new series that um, Jason described to us just a moment ago. We're, we're going to spend a, a number of weeks in the Gospel of Luke, looking at some of the stories of Jesus' call to a variety of people to, to follow him and also the variety of responses that, that, that they offer. It's a, a series that has been designed to help us know how to live following Jesus. Into this, what is this amazing adventure that, that God would call us to have with him? So it's about continuing to learn to follow, or perhaps for some it's about taking that first step to follow. And also it's about, for all of us, the reminder that we have from God to be people who invite others to follow Jesus as well. But before I launch into the passage that, that Doug's just read, I wanted to share a bit of a story from a holiday that Rachel and I and the kids had just a couple of months ago. We were fortunate, it was quite remarkable the way it, it turned out, but we were fortunate to have a, a trip over to the US. None of us had been there before. But we had about two weeks. It was New York, Boston, Disneyland, and then LA. So it was kind of this trip of a lifetime for us. And when you step into a different place, like America's similar, but it's also quite different both those things at the same time. You step into a place you haven't been before and there's a lot to learn. One of the things I learned, which is something I think I already knew, but at least on this trip experienced firsthand, was the exceptionally high level of respect that Americans have for their first responders. So police, paramedics, firefighters, those people in those sorts of occupations. It's apparent everywhere you go. No more apparent though than at the World Trade Center Museum. This is what's been built on the site where the Twin Towers once stood. And it's an incredibly sad, but also an incredibly beautiful place. None of those photos I took kind of capture, you get little snippets of it, but it's a remarkable site. I hadn't really paid much attention to what had, how that site had been developed over the last 10 or 15 years, so I didn't really know what to expect. And of course, our kids were too young even to really know about the events that brought all of this about. But we turned up and we found these two incredible fountains kind of buried deep, like they're, they're bigger than they look, they're enormous. They're actually the footprints of where the Twin Towers once stood. There's two of these things. Spectacular. And along the edges of these two enormous fountains were engraved the names of every one of the victims of that horrible event back in 2001. Of special significance though were the first responders, each with their name marked accordingly, their if they were a firefighter, the station they came from, like it was really highly apparent. You go into the museum, which is right next to those as well, and all the more so, the memorabilia, the way the story's told. A huge amount of respect for these people. In American culture, first responders are the heroes. They're the heroes because they take the greatest risk, and they, they're the heroes because they're the ones who go first. And today in the passage that we've heard, we meet Jesus' first responders. These are the handful of people who took, who were the first ones to respond to the message in the person of Jesus. They're his first disciples. We're going to take a look at two short stories, actually. Doug's read to us the first one, and it was Jesus' encounter with Simon, Simon Peter and James and John at the Sea of Galilee. It starts, the story starts with a familiar scene in the Gospels. Jesus is doing what he was doing at the time. He's kind of traveling around, teaching about God and this alternate reality described as the kingdom. The problem is, on this event, as in many others, Jesus was being crowded out by the people. And he's on the edge of the Sea of Galilee and he's running out of space. 
sees a couple empty boats on the shore, jumps in one of them and fairly presumptuously asks Simon Peter to kind of get him out on the water. So he ends up teaching from this floating pulpit. Simon Peter is right there with Jesus, of course. He hasn't kind of pushed him out and let him figure it out by himself. He's right there in the boat. What that means is he's got front row seats to whatever it was that Jesus was saying, whatever he was teaching. We don't get given that information, but he's right there with Jesus, taking it all in. Eventually, Jesus finishes his teaching and he he turns to Simon Peter and he says, you're not meant to talk about Jesus like this, but he says pretty much the stupidest thing he could possibly have said at that point in time. He says to Simon, why don't you put your nets out again? was a ridiculous thing to suggest for a number of reasons. First of all, Peter and his crew had been fishing there all night and caught nothing. There were were no fish there to be caught that day. It's also daytime and net fishing like they were doing could only happen at night. It was never going to work during the day. And third of all, as the Bible makes a point of saying, they're out there in the deep water. Net fishing was done in the shallows. What Jesus suggested made no sense at all. Peter knew that better than anyone. He says, Master, you've got to read the sarcasm in this. He says, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. You paraphrase that a bit and he says to Jesus, you fool, I'm, I'm the fisherman here, you're the carpenter. What you've just suggested, it's the most ridiculous idea you could have come up with. And just to show you, yeah, I'll put down the nets just so we can see how clueless you really are. We read this as Peter obeying Jesus. He's not obeying. He's actually responding in arrogance. Yet what happens next defies belief, breaking all of the first century fishing rules. Yet they catch more fish than two boats can handle. So you get this miracle that takes place, this, this nature miracle. Jesus demonstrates his mastery over all things. He makes happen what could never happen. Peter is so, if you picture that moment, obviously the last thing he expected. Yet also his, his mindset at this point, Peter, you see in the scripture, he doesn't want to draw attention to this. They've just caught more fish than they would have caught in who knows how long. From a new source of wherever fish come from. And he doesn't want to give it away. He's thinking payload. This was going to fund them for a long, long time. So you've got to keep the secret right. You don't want to let on to anyone else that these fish are here to be be caught. Who knows how long it might last. And, And who's going to give up, having stumbled across it, who's going to give up a ready source of income like this? That's why the Bible says he doesn't kind of yell out to his crew and draw everyone's attention. He kind of signals them over. He wants to keep this thing concealed. Got to keep it quiet. So they land their catch. Peter's response to Jesus, all this having taken place, his response seems like a pretty strange one. He says, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Like what's his sin got to do with the fish they've just caught? Why, why does he respond in these in this way you know a more natural response might have just been to question Jesus how on earth he just did this like has he fished there before how did he know the fish were there how did he pull this off Peter doesn't do that though he doesn't focus on the miracle he focuses on the person 
He says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Why this response? There's been a number of suggestions made about why Peter responded this way, but I want to offer one this morning, which comes from the work of a man named Kenneth Bailey. It's a book up there. If if you're into reading, this is one of the best I've ever read. It just delves into the events, mostly of the Gospels, brings like a cultural picture to what's happening, which fills out the story so much more than what we see often from a Western perspective. It's worth a read. So I want to offer Kenneth Bailey's um, opinion this morning about what's going on here. You know, I asked a moment ago, who in their right mind would give up a ready source of income like this enormous amount of fish? Well, you know who did, or who would. It's the person who just did. Jesus did. Jesus could have done what Peter wanted to do, which was just keep it for himself. And he could have used it. He's this travelling preacher, not earning a lot of money, telling a message that was upsetting most people. He could have used the cash. It would have funded him and what he was doing for a long, long time. But he doesn't take it. He performs this miracle and he gives it away. And so Peter, in this encounter, is confronted by a man who has such a radically different value system to his own. And it caught him off guard. It's not what he expected. He's just heard the message from Jesus sitting there in the boat with him. And then right before his very eyes, he sees this man make a very real choice between, between God and, on this occasion, money. But two things happen for Peter. He, he's drawn to that. Like, he can't help but be attracted to what he's just seen. He's in awe of it, and he's even kind of a little bit fearful. But at the same time, he can't help see himself in light of that. He becomes aware of his own sinfulness. One encounter, and Jesus, Peter's priorities have been challenged to the deepest level. It's because of that that he responds to Jesus with these words of repentance. You know, five minutes ago, Peter is mocking Jesus. You know, pretending to call him master. And now on the back of these events, he's suddenly calling him Lord. You know, Peter and his crew, they land a bunch of fish that day, but Jesus lands something far more important. He lands himself a true follower. And in fact, he gets three of them, James and John as well. True disciples, people who were prepared to have their values and their priorities and their lives challenged and then changed on the deepest level so that they would be able to follow, to make a full response. Now, if we should be surprised or not that those three men, of course, through the work and the power of the Spirit, go on to change the world. Jesus offers us the same call to come and follow, which is a call to to change allegiance and reprioritise as we need to, to adopt Jesus' values and his priorities and to have all of God's goals become ours as well. That's the call to follow. And I wonder, when when God looks at people living out their lives in a a place like Australia, what what does he see? I think he sees a bunch of good stuff and things which, in the right sense, because he's God, he would be proud of. Sometimes I wonder, though, if he looks and he thinks to himself, yeah, that's, it's good, but it's not, it's not quite what I had in mind. 
no matter where we live and what we do, we, we live, all of us, with this enormous pressure on us to conform. But the greater pressure perhaps isn't to be conformed to the image of Christ, it's to be conformed to something else, what we might call culture. It's this powerful force that it has a way of squeezing us into its mould. Its goal is to create a whole bunch of people who are pretty much identical. The same values, the same goals, the same way of thinking, the same view of the world. You can't escape the pressure. You turn the TV on, you walk down the street, everything before our eyes in culture, most things, will try to push us into that mould, make us all the same. What do we do with that when we have this call from Jesus to follow? Requires, at at the very least it would seem, it would require us to at least question all of that. Be aware of it. Measure whether it's right or not. Probably it will require us to resist a great deal of it. Not everything. Some of it's good. A lot of it's God-given. But at least some of it. And certainly when we see the clash, it would require us to somehow find a way to choose God's way and not the world's. Stuff's not easy though. How do we do it? Together in community is a part of the answer. That's why this month and beyond we're having this growth group conversation. It's pretty hard to figure this out alone. We need one another to help, to share, to talk, to pray, perhaps even challenge and question at times. But we need one another because we're not meant to follow alone. I'm going to leave that scene at the Sea of Galilee now Next in Luke's Gospel, there are two short stories of Jesus healing a couple of people. First is a man with leprosy, the second is a man who's paralysed. But I want to kind of jump over those this morning and, and, and hit the next little story later in Luke chapter 5. From verse 27, this is the calling of Jesus' next disciple. It's up on the screen, but I'll, I'll read this little story to you as well. We're told there that after this, after these healings, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, Jesus is just being Jesus here. If, you know, the, the sorts of people he was typically hanging out with didn't make him popular. So he goes from three kind of burly fishermen to a tax collector, which is even worse. Levi or Matthew, this is the last person Jesus should have been seen with. Levi worked collecting, collecting taxes for Rome. Rome was Israel's occupying enemy. So he's extorting the Israelites, God's people, to fund the enemy. He's not a popular man. For Jesus to have anything to do with him was for Jesus to invite scandal, which is exactly what he gets. Just before that, though, a moment just looking at Levi's response to Jesus' invitation. We're told that Levi got up, left everything and followed him. This is pretty much exactly the same response that we see in that earlier story from uh, Simon, James and John. They left everything. It's unlikely, though, that this means that Levi left all his worldly possessions behind and just got on this following journey. That would be spectacular, but Luke, in writing this, has actually something a bit bigger in mind. 
By saying he left everything, it's Luke's way of saying that like the others, Levi's response was a response of repentance. It's about taking the dramatic step to, in, to reorient his entire life around God's purposes. It's Luke's way of saying that all that Levi had and all that he was and all that he wanted was suddenly belonged to Jesus. In that moment, however God moved him, however Jesus moved him, he became a true follower. What he does next, what Levi does next, comes exactly from this. He throws a massive party for Jesus. Why? So that all of his mates could meet Jesus as well. The scandal is that Jesus accepts the invitation. You know, consider the culture of the day. Simply by turning up at that party, Jesus, he's willingly defiling himself. This is a bunch of ceremonially unclean people that Jesus sits down and eats with. Any respectable Jew wouldn't have gone within a mile of the place. You've got the Pharisees looking on, the religious elite. And for them, it's case closed. Jesus and his disciples, they're caught in the act of table fellowship with these sinners. He's hanging out with people who themselves are living outside of faithfulness to God. So it's, it's guilt by association, just by being there. Jesus, in their view, brings it on himself. He's become one of them. And in this, the polarized thinking that the Pharisees were so good at, it was a done deal because you can't sit at table with these sorts of people and claim that God is on your side. Couldn't have it, couldn't have it both ways. Problem is, of course, the Pharisees had misunderstood God's purposes all along. God's purpose for them wasn't for Jesus' followers to distance themselves and remove themselves from the world, trying to live their life just not being contaminated by everything. God's purpose was actually the exact opposite. It was to enter the world, to follow Jesus in entering the world, so that they might have the opportunity to invite others to become followers too. The remarkable thing is that Matthew, Levi, instinctively he gets this. This is his first step. Strangely enough, though, as that story kind of plays out, Levi just slips away into the background a bit. And we find this rebuke from Jesus toward the Pharisees for their their misunderstanding, their attitude. Flip that around, though, it's actually also a compliment to Levi for what he did do. It's also, in that sense, instructive to us. Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's the same word again, repentance. It's a complete reorientation away from the world's way of things to God's way of things. Jesus says that it's these people, the very ones who seem to be outside the boundaries of acceptability, they're actually the ones I've come to save. Which, of course, is us all. And his not very subtle message to his disciples in that encounter is to say to them, guess what? You're the ones that I'm going to use to help me do it. It's this incredible looking outwards from Levi. Jesus led the way in sitting down at that table with those people. But he was only there because Levi set the whole thing up.
a remarkable response of faith. You know, as followers of Jesus, we don't, we don't believe in an idea or a philosophy or an ideology or even a theology. We believe in a person. We're called to follow Jesus. Put these two stories together and they're about the priorities and the activities of those who do respond to Jesus, to that call to come and follow. But they're also about those who, having begun to follow, get involved in Jesus' ministry and invite a whole bunch of other, other people to come and follow too. That is God's ongoing call to us. It's, it's to come to Jesus, continue learning together about how to do that, about how to reorient our lives in the ways that are required how to shape our lives around God's values and his purposes and figuring out together how we let ourselves be used by God so that we can invite other people into that too. The invitation is to come and follow. But what I love about these passages is that there's a promise there too. Just don't be afraid. From now on you will catch people. There's the promise of God. It is a core part of the purpose of our lives. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for... You know, I talked about these disciples being the first responders, but perhaps really you were the first responder to your Heavenly Father, living your life on this earth, doing the things you did, saying the things you said, making the invitation to come and follow we thank you for your model of obedience we thank you for the way that you call in this passage your disciples but by extension all of us to follow you into a life of joy and of purpose not necessarily to do different things but to do what we do as you yourself would do them thank you that our lives are grounded in this that you have a reason for us a purpose for us, a hope and a joy. And we thank you that it's as we step deeper into this life of following, uh, the joy that becomes known only grows. It's true that we need to give our lives to you so that we might truly find them. We thank you for what comes when we take those steps. Pray that over this month as we have these conversations that you would reveal to us new and fresh ways um, where this is possible. You see our lives shaped and changed according to your purposes, but also that we would find together opportunities to be inviting other people into the joy that we know that comes from following you. We thank you for this. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for your call to us this morning. And we pray in your name. Amen.